Well, I don't claim to have a very broad familiarity with uh, the entertainment world or the media, but I, I have been paying attention lately to some popular references that I, I might notice or might come across uh, related to Jesus. You know, just simply maybe asking the question, how often uh, do we see the, the name Jesus or something related to Jesus just come across uh, our, our windshield in the course of everyday life? So even in my limited media library, I've noticed Jesus-themed material uh, kind of popping up pretty regularly. You don't have to look very far or go too long without seeing something like this uh, somewhere out there in, in uh, the media or the entertainment world. So what am I referring to specifically? Well, of course, you'd have something like the popular television show called The Chosen, uh, or my Amazon account uh, continues to remind me to or suggest that I watch this television show called Honk for Jesus and Save Your Soul. I have no intentions of watching that. I don't know anything of what it's about, but it just had the word Jesus in it. So I thought, well, that was interesting. Of course, who hasn't seen maybe one of the recent ads for the campaign He Gets Us? And I heard that they're spending a tremendous amount of money leading up to the Super Bowl, especially to make some commercials and, and ads during the Super Bowl. Um, all I'm trying to say here, and not that I even know a little bit or a lot about any of those things, but all I'm trying to say here is that there's a lot of accessible material that would be out there that we wouldn't even need to be looking for necessarily that falls under the broader Jesus category, if you will. Um, now, the question I would have related to all those things is this. Wouldn't it be great if the Bible gave us some help on how to discern the good or the not-so-good presentations or teachings or things as they relate to Jesus? Wouldn't it be great if, if the Bible would help us along in that? Well, it just so happens that it does, and it just so happens that today's message is part three of a sermon series we're going through in the book of Colossians right now on how to guard against false teaching, how to have that grid and have some discernment to know all of the things that come across our screen, that come across our purview, that come into our ears or into our eyes and into our mind of whether these things are true and accurate depictions and teachings of Jesus Christ. You, know, you, might, you might ask, well, why so many messages on this topic anyway, uh, this being the third, and we'll have at least one more next week. Well, there's a number of reasons why it, it, it does require so many messages. If you could go to this first slide, I thought I'd just take a few minutes uh, this week especially and just walk through why we're giving so much attention to this idea of guarding against false teaching. I think there's a couple of reasons. This is the first one. There is repeated concern by the Apostle Paul, especially in Colossians chapter 2. His heart is predisposed, and he has tremendous concern for the church there at Colossae. And so I've referenced a number of these times it comes up here in Colossians chapter 2. where The Apostle Paul, his concern was that the church wouldn't be misled. It wouldn't be pulled off to the side. In chapter 2, verse 8, that the church wouldn't be taken captive. Uh, we looked at this last week, that there is an actual a kidnapping, if you will, uh, taking them off and destroying the peace that's in their heart that God can give. He set up, my concern is for this. Chapter 2, verse 16, his concern was that the church would not be manipulated, wouldn't be twisted and, and turned and pulled off course. 
Chapter 2, verse 18, the church would not be disqualified. And chapter 2, verse 20, that the church would not be man-made. His concern is that, in fact, God's church would be directed by God himself, and it would have the the tone and the atmosphere and the look of being God-made, not man-made. And so one of the reasons why this is we're spending a number of weeks on this topic is this repeated concern that the Apostle Paul is making at this very reason and, and at this very occasion that the church would not be deceived, would not give in to something false, a false caricature or a false idea or a false gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a second one, if we could go to the next slide though, and it is this. There are numerous approaches and numerous angles that the Apostle Paul gives to us of how we are to be able to guard against false teaching, how we are to know what is true, what is accurate, how to keep that close, and how to remain anchored in the true teaching of Jesus. And so here we have just a number of tactics, if you will, approaches, angles that the Apostle Paul takes. In other words, just to say it this way, there's no one magic bullet. There is no one approach that would uh, suffice for all of these concerns that the Apostle Paul has. And so he, he gives also, with those concerns, a number of answers. And, and he rounds us out with a full-orbed guard against false teaching. And here we can see, again, in Colossians chapter 2, a number of these ways that Paul said we can be on guard. That we should have full assurance of who Christ is. That we should keep walking in Christ. Uh, don't sit down. Don't sit still in, in your desire to continue pursuing Christ. But make it be an ongoing living thing. In verse 10, that we recall the fullness that we have in Christ. You remember this from last week. Christ is the fullness of God and in him we become full. He is the only all-satisfying thing in this life. And so we recall these things. We know the life that comes from Christ. This is what we'll be looking at this morning. That that there is no other alternative. There's no outside thing that awakens our soul to God except for Jesus Christ. He is life in and of himself. Verse 17, look to Christ as the true substance. That there are some counterfeit things out there. Uh, that give the appearance, but in fact, they're empty. And so we'll learn in the coming weeks that Christ is the true substance of spirituality. Verse 19, that we would hold fast to and grow in Christ. And then in chapter 2, verse 20, as this chapter ends, we are to submit to our new freedom. He says, if Christ has set you free, you're free indeed. Submit to that freedom. Why would you go back to handcuffing yourself by all these regulations Submit to the freedom that is in Christ. But there's one last reason, if we could go to this last slide, and I'm spending a little bit longer uh, in the introduction this Sunday, but I think it's helpful for us to know why, why so many sermons and how can these things be helpful to us. I would say that in our day, it's even more opportunistic, even more realistic that we would come across and encounter false teachings of Jesus Christ just for all of these reasons. Uh, Nearly none of these were available 2,000 years ago in the Apostle Paul's day, but now today they are available to us almost instantaneously and throughout the day regularly. And it would be this. So this series is very practical. It's very timely. Think of all of the Christian books and all of the Christian radio that's out there. If you walked into a a Barnes & Noble, you'd have an entire section that would be labeled Christian. Are, Are all of them 
accurate uh, as they teach and present Jesus Christ? Or can we have some discerning grid as we look to that and say, well, which books would really truly feed my soul and which ones would be helpful and accurate and true? So we have that uh, to deal with as well. Christian movies and television. I especially take note of, you know, we're, we're getting close. Maybe we're about eight or nine weeks or so out from Easter any time that we get close to a, a major Christian holiday like this, uh, there's going to be uh, television specials put out there. It seems like the History Channel does this uh, nearly regularly. There's going to be something about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's going to be some new material, new discovery that's come out, and, and they're going to present it. Are these things helpful? Are they true? Are they accurate? Are they helpful and healthy to my soul? And then, of course, uh, at the end here, uh, Christian music and personalities. To these things, there are no end. Uh, to these things, there is always going to be a, a, a YouTuber or a TikTok personality or someone who's trying to gain an audience by what they're saying, maybe even taking a new angle with it or, or just trying to be provocative with it, but, but drawing all of these things in. And so you say, well, this series of messages in Colossians chapter 2 may even be more relevant for us today since we see such a volume of opportunity that our minds need to be stayed on Christ and that we can discern what is true and accurate and helpful and holy as it comes to the teaching of Jesus Christ. So we have this helpful filter and discernment that we can, uh, that we can use to know all of the presentations of Jesus, the presentations of spiritual life, whether they're according to God's word. This will help us tune and calibrate our minds so that they, we remain anchored in Jesus Christ and not be lured away by false teachings. So we've titled this morning's message, surprise, surprise, How to Guard Against False Teaching, part three. This is part three as we take a look at Colossians chapter two, beginning in verse 11 through 15. The verses we'll be looking at this morning center around the spiritual blessings and the spiritual benefits that Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ can deliver. We must keep these truths close to us in our minds and hearts. What these do is act as a guardhouse that if we know that he is the only one that can deliver these to us, why would we go searching elsewhere? Why would we want a distorted view of Jesus when he alone delivers these benefits to us. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, as we look at our text here this morning. The first point I want to bring is this from Colossians chapter 2. Only Jesus can give you a heart change. He's the only one. You know, people might turn over a new leaf in life or might have a, a reckoning or, or change some ways or whatever, but only Jesus Christ can do a heart work in you so that you can truly, legitimately say, I am a new person. Born again would be the verbiage uh, that is used often. Born again to new life. Only Jesus can do this, and it comes by uniting with him, being in Christ. We're going to see that phrase here as we look at verse 11 here in just a moment. Uniting with him in his burial and resurrection. Somehow, in a spiritual way, we participate in union with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So look with me at Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. In him, 
also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So this is some curious uh, verbiage we're going to be encountering here in these couple of verses. This probably wouldn't be the normal way that we would be referring to salvation. So we, we put on our, our thinking caps here this morning and we ask, what is the Apostle Paul trying to tell us here using some words, using some terminology in an unfamiliar way than we would normally be thinking about salvation? What is this circumcision? And we, we know what that means, especially in the Old Testament, that was used as an identifying factor of God's people that the, the parents would circumcise the child uh, shortly after being born. So, so we know what that looks like physically. What, what does that mean with human hands doing that to identify as the people of God? But Paul uses something altogether different here. He says it is a circumcision made without hands. Well, what is that? An invisible uh, a spiritual circumcision? Yes, this is what he's going to be talking about here. This is a spiritual circumcision. A circumcision of the heart would be a phrase that would have been used in the Old Testament. But what is the Apostle Paul getting at? We'll get to this in just a moment. Look back with me at verse 11. In Christ, you were circumcised with this circumcision made without hands. Something done on the inside of the body. Something invisible. Something spiritual. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, these five verses we're looking at this morning are admittedly loaded with some weighty concepts, with some weighty ideas. Uh, they're compacted here, this Reminds me of um, when we get together with my wife's family at Christmas time. Uh, one of her brothers and, and sister-in-law, they like to do these Reynolds wrap balls where you put about 15 pounds of candy, wrap it all up in the plastic wrap. It takes about an hour to unroll. That, that is what I feel like and is envisioned in my mind when we come to these verses here of the Apostle Paul. There is so much theology and in, in, in things compacted and pressed Loaded in these verses, these weighty concepts or ideas of this circumcision of Christ, this baptism, this being buried and raised, and on and on it goes down through this text. But even though there's a lot of moving parts here, the main message of these verses is very clear and it is very plain. In Jesus Christ, He has removed your old self. He has cut away the enslaving power of sin that belongs to our old self. He has removed that, and he has made us a new person. In a nutshell, this is what the Apostle Paul is saying here. That only happens in Christ. He alone gives you a heart change as we unite together in faith with Jesus Christ in his burial and resurrection. He alone kills off, if you will, cuts away the power of sin and resurrects us to new life. Let's look at these verses here. Verse 11 starts off with, in him. This is the key to understanding all that's said in these verses. You recall from last Sunday, the Apostle Paul said, we have been filled in Christ. Now, beginning in verse 11, he's starting to describe what does that filling involve? 
What does it look like that the fullness of God dwelt in Christ bodily and we've been filled in him? As we come to Christ, what, what does that mean for us? What are the blessings and the benefits that, this, that is involved in this filling and being filled up in him? So verse 11 here begins by saying in him or united together with him or having our identity bound up in him or being immersed in him. These are all images and, and verbiage that the Apostle Paul is using. In other words, we could say it this way. We experience the accomplishments of Christ and we gain the achievements of Christ through our union with him, through our being found in him. By faith in Jesus Christ, it causes an identity, a union with Christ from which we draw all of the blessings and we experience his accomplishments and we gain his achievements. This is a key doctrine in the New Testament. We see it spelled out here to us in verse 11. We have a spiritual circumcision performed on us by Christ because of our union with him as his flesh was stripped away at the cross. Commentators here on verse 11 wrestle a little bit as to whose circumcision is being referred to. Is this Christ's own, meaning that his body was stripped away or cut away as he died that death on the cross? Or is this referring to our uh, circumcision as the hardness of our heart is being stripped away as we are dying to sin in the flesh? That it, this is something that Christ has performed for us in removing the enslaving power of sin in our life. Personally, I'm not sure that it needs to be one or the other, that this is speaking of him or something that he's done to us. I think this is speaking about both, that being in Christ, we experience both. Christ's removal of his earthly body and flesh caused our removal of being spiritually enslaved to sin. This is the circumcision of the heart that happens at conversion. This is how Scripture would describe a, a person who becomes saved, a person who is in Christ, a person who is born again. The hardness of heart, that hardness of propensity against God has been melted away, cut away, so that now we have entered in a new relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's a warming, a softening, a following. All of that, the Apostle Paul would say here, is part of what it means to be circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands. His death on the cross caused our removal of the hardness of heart. This is what takes place at the moment of conversion. We move on to verse 12. Having then been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Verse 12 is now going to go on to say that in Christ we don't just have the removal of our old self. We also have a new life infused within us. It is the bringing forth of something new. It is a, an opening of the eyes to the wonders and the majesty of God. It is the joyful taste and see of this forgiveness and the blessings that we receive through Jesus Christ. We, our old self, our old life, are buried with Christ because of our union with him, and we are raised to a new life 
just as he was raised. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's a beautiful statement. If you're a Christian here today, you can remember the old rebellious life against God and now a new walking in submission, joy uh, towards God. All of that was done because of our union with Christ and the life that he brings to us. Now, we see here at the beginning of verse 12, the word baptism. This is not a reference, I believe, to water immersion, but rather our immersion in Christ himself. This entire passage is speaking about being in him, being immersed in him. We have been buried as we are immersed in Christ. We are being raised with him through faith as we are immersed in Christ. So this, this immersion of being in him is our are being in union with Christ. We see this throughout this passage. Baptism in Scripture doesn't always refer to water baptism. It's a case in the Gospels of something like the baptism of suffering. It just means being into or immersed in. So that is what I believe is being said here, that being in Christ, we are immersed in his death and burial. Having said that, though, We do teach, we do believe that water baptism visibly represents exactly what is spiritually being described here. Being buried with Christ in his death and raised to life with Christ in his resurrection. There's one last point I want to make before we move on to verse 13. It is this. The removal of our old self and the making of a new person doesn't come through effort of our own. It doesn't come through works. It doesn't come through effort. It doesn't come through our performance. It comes, as it says here in verse 12, only through faith. Only through faith. Through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. Faith unites us in Christ, unites us in his burial and resurrection, allowing us to experience his accomplishments and gain the achievements of Christ, we believe this is what baptism represents. And this is why we hold to believer's baptism rather than pedo-baptism or baby baptism. We move on here to verse 13, 14, and 15. Our last point here this morning, not only do we look at these verses and we find one of the ways to guard against uh, false teaching is to know that only Jesus can give you a heart change, but secondly, Only Jesus can bring spiritual life because he is the only one who assumes and accepts the lawful breaking of sin that we have incurred and trades it for forgiveness and cancels our sin debt as we heard a few moments ago as we took communion. Look with me at verses 13 through 15. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. I have a hard time going past this verse without always saying that all means all. All means all. If there were just but one sin in our life that remained unforgiven by God through Christ, we would be miserable, we would be doomed and damned. This verse says all, brothers and sisters. All means all. Verse 14, by canceling this record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, 
This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Verse 13 is teaching us that apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. We have no real part or interest in God. Our original relationship with our Creator, severed. We are in need of being brought to life, and that is exactly what is done in and with and through Jesus Christ and all that He accomplished, His ministry here on earth and His death on the cross. In verses 13 and 14, we see that this takes a number of actions. It's, it's the forgiveness of all of our sins. It's the canceling of that written record, that verdict that is handed down against us, that is accurate and true. But it's also the nailing to the cross of all of the charges that we incurred, and they are put to his account, thus removing them. They're all done. They're Lifted from our charge and our account. God raises us to spiritual life. And what is involved in this? What is involved in bringing us life spiritually? It's the forgiveness of our sins. It's the canceling of our written charges. And it's the attachment of our sins to Christ's account. Which he paid in full at the cross. Why did Christ die? Why did he go to the cross? to pick up our sin bill, assume it onto himself, nail it to his cross, paid in full. That is the gospel, brothers and sisters. Christians are not people who are innocent of sin. We are not people who are void of sin. We are people who are forgiven of sins through Jesus Christ. All of this plays a triumphal note as our text ends here this morning in verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God put Satan, put Satan's demons to open shame by disarming them of their weapons. These would be weapons of accusation against us. He disarmed them of their ammunition and the track record of our sins. God exposed and displayed their ultimate defeat in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If the ultimate price of sin is death, Jesus went to death and rose again on the third day in triumphal defeat of all that Satan and his demons were trying to accomplish. God overturned the verdict of damnation. He overturned the verdict of what Satan and his demons wanted with the verdict of forgiven in Jesus Christ. What a great triumph it is to know Christ, the power of his resurrection. God has publicly shown the powerlessness of Satan. He's publicly shown the powerlessness of demons through his overpowering, mighty work in Christ to forgive us our sins and to redeem us unto himself. God has not lost his creation. He has not lost his humanity. He has bought them back through Jesus. Christ in his overpowering, mighty work on the cross. Close with this story. The reformer, Martin Luther, said he had this recurring dream. In his dream, 
Satan brought before him these volumes and volumes of accusations against Martin Luther. And he would read each of these accusations and follow it up with a question to Martin Luther in this way, is this true? And he would read another one, is this true? Did you do this? Is this true and is this true? On and on and on and Luther confessed to all of them and said it by the, by the end of this dream, after all of uh, the readings of all of the things that he had done, he felt the lowest he had ever felt because he had to admit that it was true that he had done all of them, that his accusations, and as the defendant, he was found guilty as charged. But suddenly, courageously, he remembered the gospel And he said this, Satan, it is true, every word you've said, but right across it all. Don't forget to overwrite across the top of all of those things that you said are true. Write this, through the cross of Jesus Christ, I have been forgiven of all of that. That is the joy of a Christian brothers and sisters, that over and on top of and across all of our sins and all of the things that we have committed, we can write forgiven. Christ has taken those and nailed them to his cross. In this way, God puts to shame and triumphs over all evil. And in this way, we guard ourselves against false teaching by clinging only to Christ, who alone is makes us new, forgives us all of our sins, claims us for God. Let's close our time this morning in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this passage of Scripture, even though we're thinking how it relates to guarding ourselves against false teaching. Lord, we we also realize there are some tremendous truths in here. Though we are guilty, we can be forgiven. Though we have broken your law, we can be redeemed. We thank you for putting forward Christ to take those from us, nailing them to his his cross. Lord, we have nothing but praise, nothing but worship, nothing but gratitude in reply. We thank you for the truths of your word and the power of your gospel, that it triumphs over all evil and all of evil's accusations against us in this life. Lord, thank you for this text this morning. Press it to our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.